Penny University, a podcast with value. Penny University presents 2019, Our Investigation, Our Truth. What happened to the Granite Mountain Interagency Hotshot Crew? A mother determined and almost broken, fulfilling a promise to her son lost. A friend lost in contradictions between the crew he knows and the crew that was distorted. What happened in Yarnell, Arizona? at the end of June 2013. Episode 1, Why? These episodes are representations of conversations from my, Deborah's, living room. Actually, yes, honestly, we're in my living room. We talked in Doug's truck heading out to Yarnell, Conversations we had when walking on the trail that the Granite Mountain Interagency Hotshot Crew walked. Our conversations at the fatality site where the crew lost their lives. Things that happened in attorney's offices, conversations from conference rooms, litigation rooms, courtrooms, phone calls, emails, you name it, we're going to be talking about it. Nothing will be hidden and everything we tell you is the truth. From now on, we will refer to Granite Mountain Interagency Hotshot Crew as Granite Mountain. In upcoming episodes, you'll be joining us as we talk about what we know, what we discovered, and what has been proven about the deaths of the Granite Mountain crew. We're going to be covering what occurred from Friday, June 28th through Sunday, June 30th of 2013, plus some other events. Um, on days, weeks, and even years that followed this tragedy. To be straightforward, we're going to be discussing a wildland fire that broke out in Yarnell, Arizona, that killed 19 men. What happened? What led to their deaths? What do we know? What have we discovered? And we're going to share all of that with you. We hope to be very detailed, but we know that this isn't just a full comprehensive investigation. We're not professional investigators, but we think that that is what needs to change. There needs to be a professional investigation of what happened. How can you correct things? How can you change things if you don't have the best and most important information? We are not professional podcasters. We will be learning this medium as we go. There will be tears and maybe some raw language, so please be aware. This is a grassroots effort to get the truth out, to stop the rewriting of history. Let me introduce myself. My name is Deborah Fingston. My son, Andrew Ashcraft, was a lead sawyer for the Granite Mountain Interagency Hotshot Crew. He basically worked a chainsaw. You know, one day I had my son, the next day I didn't. A few days after the fatality happened, they took the families out to Yarnell, to the fatality site. I hiked out with other families, and then I stopped. I looked around. I knew something horrifically went wrong. This crew knew fire. This crew was expert at what they did. Andrew knew fire. Something had to really go wrong for them to be at that place and lose their lives. I made a promise to Andrew that day that I would find out what happened. I needed to know what happened. My name's Doug Harwood. 
I'm a firefighter. I worked on Granite Mountain for quite a few years, and I was good friends with a, a lot of the guys on that crew. I felt the same way as Deborah when I walked out to the, when I saw the fatality site. It just, things didn't add up. Um, and I still feel that way <laughs> now that we've done our own looking into it. And I also would like to introduce a third person that sits with us through these awkward conversations. And her name is Shelby. We could say she sits in the booth. She's our audio girl. But actually, she shares a table with us. We need to do this. We're compelled to do this. We're driven to do this. We want to share this information. We've heard a lot of speakers. We've read a lot of books. We've seen a lot of articles. And every time we say, they didn't cover this, or this wasn't information was wrong, they needed to know this. So we're going to tell you what happened. We're driven to tell you what happened. We want to bring you into our world. We want to put you next to the fire. We want to put you in the rooms that we were in. We want you to see and hear what the crew saw and heard. We're going to do all of this by walking you through the Serious Accident Investigation Report, or SAIR. This was a report that was completed by uh, teams that were handpicked by the Forest Service. The Forest Service basically investigating itself. And it only took 30 days. That's right. And the Arizona Department of Occupational Safety and Health Report, the ADOSH report. We're going to walk you through both these reports kind of simultaneously with recorded interviews from both of these agencies, shared information from our interviews, and we're also going to share information that we have discovered. We realized that these investigations didn't add up. From the day it was first released in the library at a local school here in Prescott, Arizona, they asked the families to be there. They handed us the report as we walked in the door. It's a small spiral-bound report. You can Google it. You can read it. They told us they had an hour, but they started out with a 20-minute video. So basically, we had about 35 minutes to look through the report and then ask them questions. To say that that library was tense is an understatement. But I also remember seeing a tall guy in the back of the room in a Prescott fire uniform. That was my first time I remember seeing Doug. It was from that library meeting that Doug and I started working together with our families. And it was from that day and that report that we started moving forward. My experience in the library was real similar to yours, Deborah. I felt uh, like what they were telling us wasn't adding up. It wasn't anything that I, I felt like that crew would do or it didn't seem like a situation that they would be involved in. And then going back to when you said you were at the accident site and imagining that crew in that position, it just was something that never added up to me. Agreed. The time in the library was just such a frustration. People were still in shock. People were still trying to figure out what's going on, and they kind of just tossed this report at us. And it, that room was so full of frustration, you could, you could taste it. Um, it was just appalling. And both... Um, I won't answer for you, Doug, you can, but I know for myself, 
I worked for eight years in a um, crash investigation program, a safety program, and this accident investigation report was not anything like I'd ever seen before. It was written like a little short story, a novelette. It, it wasn't explaining to us what happened that day. Um, throughout the next coming episodes, we want to expose deceptions uh, and we want to reveal what we believe to be truths. Facts were ignored, truth was ignored. Even one example of a truth being ignored, we took many trips out to the Arnell um, Fatality Site and walked around and examined. One time I was there with my husband, Jerry, and he walked up away from the Fatality Site up onto the hill and he found one of the crew's gloves. He didn't want to touch it. He knew the investigation was happening. He left it alone, came back down. We talked about it a little bit. We let the investigation um, investigators know we found a glove. The glove disappeared. It was never acknowledged. The only acknowledgement we discovered of it was during the medical examiner's reports that we read. Anthony Rose, one of the crew members, was missing a glove. And we'll discuss later where I think they were and where um, what we think Anthony was doing when he lost that glove. And there's so many facts that are ignored too, like radio transmissions that they say never existed, that we have factual recordings of them now. So well, absolutely. there's a lot of stuff to get into. One of the big, remember, uh, one of our major um, angers, if I could use that word, inappropriately was how in the SAIR report they say there was a half hour of radio silence yet anybody can go online and Google and listen to the audios of Granite Mountain calling on the radio, talking on the radio during that supposed half hour of silence. Yep. This uh, rewriting of history, firefighters using the SAIR, that report we were just talking about to learn from, staff rides and and firefighters are being taught that this is this is the way it actually happened, and we know we know facts that are opposed to that. Right, and what you know, we'll even talk about what a staff ride is. It's where they try to duplicate exactly what happened, so that other firefighters can um, understand where they were when they were making decisions. But they want to modify that. They don't want the audios played and. You know, this information needs to get out. People need to hear it. So from this point, how we're going to proceed is we're going to take it one step at a time, one day at a time, one discovery at a time. So all episodes are just going to be in a linear fashion. Episode, episode is going to build on each other. We're going to try and mix up step-by-step -step conversations with conversations from others. We're going to have some more Granite Mountain Crew alumni in. We're going to have to talk about history. We're going to be talking about other interviews. We're going to be having other guest speakers talk with us. There's a lot of people that have a voice here. And Doug, we're going to rely on Doug for some wildland fire lingo. There's going to be a lot of acronyms, as you have already heard with the SAIR report the Serious Accident Investigation Report, the ADOSH report, the Arizona Department of Safety and Health. There's going to be a lot of those acronyms. So we're going to try our best to um, 
explain those to you. And we're going to rely on our audio girl, Shelby, to say, I don't know what that is. You know, honestly, I was on a learning curve when this happened. I only knew some stories that Andrew shared with me. I didn't know about the wildland firefighters. I didn't know a whole lot about them. I knew structure firefighters, but I didn't, I only knew what Andrew did. And honestly, I was blind to some of the dangers. It was after we lost Andrew did I dive in wholeheartedly. And I relied on Doug a whole lot. We don't think anybody set out with a predetermined mind to kill the Grand Mountain Hotshot crew, obviously. But there is a series of events that happened, like dominoes, ending in the fatality. So let's dive in. Honestly, the very first domino fell on March 28th of 2013. The Arizona State Forestry Division released a season outlook for the year of 2013. Let me read you a quote from that report. It said Yarnell was mentioned as having sh um, chaparral with below average live fuel moisture and older chaparral stands with high dead to live ratios. We'll discuss that. And it may prove resistant to controlled efforts due to the low live fuel moistures. The dry winter and late spring precipitation had led to a delay in new seasonal fuel line growth. In conclusion, the report stated that Yarnell area had high fire potential. Then on Friday, June 28th, a lightning strike. Fire was reported, and then this ride starts. Yeah, at that time, they said they couldn't even get people through the fuels in there. They uh, had to rely on aviation to fly them up to the fire. Um, most firefighters rely on things they've seen in other fires. They use those as, uh, they call it, a lot of times we refer to them as slides. From past fires, our history on other fires, we see what the fire did on a slope, how it burned through certain fuels, and we lock those away and use them on the next fire we go to or the next time we see something similar. Um, also, you can build those slides through training, going over other reports, other fatality reports. In the past, that's the way that's the way a lot of the Grand Mountain guys and a lot of and the way I learned a lot of uh, by going over these reports. Um, there's always the comment. When we were in the library, I remember thinking a lot of the parents that were in there or the family members of uh, Granite Mountain guys were upset that not everybody had radios. And at the time, in my mind, I was thinking, well, that's just the way it is. Not everybody has radios when you're on a wildland crew. Well, that's a regular thing that was said, huh, Doug? Yeah. I mean, no matter what, when we first started looking into things. I don't know how many wildland firefighters, and you included Doug, used to say, well, that's not the way it's done. That's not the way it has been done. That's not the way we do it. And it became so frustrating. I felt like screaming at the top of my lungs, but it doesn't have to be that way. Yep. There are better ways. There are other, are other options. Um, I don't know. This is kind of going back to those slides, though, but as... As you see how, as I saw how bad this report was, 
it made me look at all those other reports I read, all those other things they blamed on other crews. Um, well, it makes you re reinvestigate, rethink about what your what your own slides are and what you can blame those other other deaths on. Well, I know when we had a lot of conversations, other fires would come up, and one of the ones that came up was a wildland fire called the Dude Fire, and. On, at the dude fire, six firefighters lost their lives. And I kept hearing, well, yeah, it was similar to this, and other things happened, and it's like, why do they continue to happen? What needs to change? What needs to be known? Over and over, yeah. So Friday night? Yep. Uh, so Friday night, the IC commander went out, that's uh, incident commander, went out on Friday night to meet with the BLM duty officer. BLM is Bureau of Land Management. So the duty officer in that area for the BLM and uh, the Type 3 incident commander. The incident command is set up, there's different types of incident command. There's, it starts with Type 5, which would basically be like maybe a single tree lightning strike that one crew can put out or a campfire Basically nothing, oh, you know, one person can, should be able to put the fire out. Hopefully with a hose. Right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Type 4 is getting a little more complex. There might be three or four engines on it, acre-sized fire, but they can, they're able to handle it. Usually the local resource can handle it with what they have. Type 3 is when you're starting to get into maybe, usually it's not a bigger incident. Usually they go from the bigger incidents down and kind of reduce it down to a Type 3 incident commander. Um, just because there are a lot of resources, but usually there's not much fire. So the reason why um, they, and we're talking about a dispatcher, somebody calls 911, um, why that dispatcher chose a Type 3 IC commander to go look at this fire is because they didn't think it was that big of a deal or not but, large enough. Right, or he's the state, the person in charge for the state for checking out those fires. And that is his, that's the highest designation he has is type 3 IC. Okay, and that's what happened here on Yonel. Right. Is that this representative is a state employee and he was sent out to see what was going on. Correct. Okay. Um, and the reason why I know that, I asked Doug. And I also look at um, ADOSH interviews. Uh, they interviewed the type 3 IC commander. And I'll tell you, they did a darn good interview I have to give kudos to ADOSH, and I also need to do kind of a disclaimer here. Um, I at first thought everybody was against the crew. I was a little angry in 2013, 2014. But as I look back over the interviews, I believe ADOSH did a darn good job. Their interviews are pretty um, intuitive. I can't say the same for the Serious Accident Investigation Report. In reality, the SAIR, their investigation for the June 28th was just two pages long. Only 11 lines dealt with Friday, June 28th. And in the final report, it was four paragraphs long. So during uh, this discussion of June 28th, we're going to be relying quite a bit on the ADOSH report and also on the dispatch notes. A lot, a lot of those uh, in that SAIR report, too, there was only, I can't remember the exact amount, but there wasn't very many people interviewed for that. No, you know? it, there was not. Hundreds of firefighters on that fire, and they interviewed 
Ten, ten people, maybe. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So the, we, t we discussed a couple of things, and I don't want you to be confused. We have the IC, Type 3 IC commander who was working for um, the state of Arizona. He went out and met the Bureau of Land Management's duty officer. So that's two departments or two agencies working together. What does that mean, Doug? Yeah, a lot of times on these wildland fires, agencies are just going to work together. Usually, well, a lot of times the fire is on one set of one piece of land, so it's on all on a forest somewhere. Forest Service is in charge of it, but people from all over BLM, Bureau of Land Management, state resources, different crews from all over are going to come and help them out. Um, with a wildland fire, that's the way it is. This fire, there was a lot of different land within the fire. There was BLM, there was state land, there was private land. So they had kind of a issue there to begin with, just deciding who was going to be in charge of it. Yes, one of the largest landowners of Arizona, his ranch was out there, and that caused some confusion along with everything I remember. Um, Yarnell was considered a low priority on the fire list. There were nine fires in the Prescott area that ignited that day, and Yarnell was one of the low, um, predicted to be low um, on that day, even though the March report said that the Yarnell area had the highest fire potential, they still put it low on the priority list. Um, it's one of the quotes from the report is from the IC Type 3 commander, and he states, quote, I started to identify that there was a lot of confusion, a lot of mixed jurisdictions between the 911 system, the Forest Service, and getting to where it was going to start coming onto state jurisdictions. There was a lot, a lot of confusion and resources. Resources were running all over the place, end quote. And this was before, this was talking about the lightning strikes everywhere, correct? Absolutely. So they're going all yes. over the state for all these lightning strikes, yeah. So from the get-go, there was confusion and resources were running low in the state. The IC commander decided to head out to Yarnell Friday evening. Uh, he says he saw it flare up about 9.30 with binoculars. Um, he said it was, and this is, quote, not much of a threat, and they were not going to take any action on it that night. That was based on dispatch records um, and also the ADOSH interview. Um, he decided that he did need some resources, so he requested two crews, a Lewis crew and a Yuma crew, and those are two inmate crews, which um, happen all the time. Inmate crews work very hard and are used at a very low um, dollar rate, but that doesn't mean they're any less um, on a fire. They fight just as hard and they're just as good, but they asked and requested that those two crews be in um, Peoples Valley, which is a community about seven miles outside of Yarnell at eight in the morning, and also to pack a lunch, a double lunch. There are tons of podcasts out there. You have options. Penny University is truly a podcast with value, and we strive to share great true stories. 
Some are plain fun. Some might bring a tear to your eye and maybe even make you a little angry. Listen to them all. Please listen, like, and share. Head over to our Facebook page, see who we are. And thanks for listening. You're listening to Penny University, a podcast with value. We hope you're finding this presentation intriguing. If you would like to share your two cents, please contact either Deborah or Doug at pennyuniversity at protonmail.com. Thank you. And now back to the podcast. So it was stated that the Type 3 IC commander only saw a small flare-up. Doug, you brought it up that he saw it 9.30 Friday night. Yet in the dispatch notes, they alerted him and let him know, be aware, you can see this fire from Wickenburg that people are alerting the sheriff's department. People were seeing this fire. Obviously the backside of the hill that he couldn't see from Yarnell. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And then there were, uh, he requested a seat, which is a single-engine aircraft. They do uh, retardant drops, but in very small amounts. Um, basically just, when you're under them, they feel like they just missed you. <laughs> <Really>. <laughs> it's just kind of a lower the RH, and that's about all they do. Well, you know, when you said that, what popped into my head is I don't know how many times Andrew would send a, a video of you know, a big, somebody dropping retardant and it gets so close to the crew and sometimes it hits them and they laugh and sometimes they're cussing because they missed yeah. what they were supposed to do. On the big ones, yeah, you don't want to get hit with those, but the seats, you work it right through matter. it. No, it doesn't matter. <laughs> you've, you've gotten a shower. Yep. <laughs> well, also something that happened on Friday evening was a weather report. Now, a weather report is really important. And as we go through these next few days, keep in mind that weather reports, because it's a huge part of this tragic event, is weather. So on Friday at 2227, um, I will quote you what was said. Do you want me to read it? the weather report, or email it to you. Read it over the radio. And then, can you send it to me tomorrow? They say, we'll do. Uh, and then they ordered uh, air attack, or air attack was sent from the Dosey fire. The Dosey fire was a fire um, that happened near Prescott, probably about 40 miles away. And the air attack is like a <laughs> division which that doesn't describe it either. It's basically um, someone in a, in a smaller plane that flies above the fire. They can give advice to the people, the ground forces, but usually what they're in charge of is all the air resources. So the helicopters, the planes, they tell them where they want the drops. They're kind of an in-between for the ground, ground resources and the air resources, but really they're in charge of all the air. And the Dosey fire was within a couple of weeks of the Yarnell Hill fire that we're talking about. And the Dosey fire was closer into Prescott. It burned into Prescott and how it was handled exactly, um, you know, crews were called in, but a lot of resources were thrown at the Dosey fire. Uh, Granite Mountain also worked on that. So here is this air attack guy still checking the Dosey fire to make sure everything's good. So they send them out to Yarnell to get recon. Yeah, and a lot of yeah. times they'll keep them. 
on those bigger fires. They'll keep resources like that, especially uh, air attack, because they can fly around and check for other lightning strikes or things like that in the area. Right. Um, he said it was two to eight acres uh, flying over. He gave a little um, report on the fire. Um, obviously, they didn't say it was doing much at that time. And so the IC incident commander's strategy for the next day was to build resources. Um, doesn't say anything about his, what his actual strategy for the fire was, just that he's going to build some resources so that he can work on what to do tomorrow, I guess. He was also worried about he couldn't mitigate risks that night, so determined that fighting fire that night wasn't a viable option. That means that it was just he didn't like the idea of sending people out there in the dark, he didn't like the idea of people working in the dark, couldn't see the, and the hike in there would have been the dangerous part between getting from your safe area to the fire with fire in between you. Well, also something that happened uh, Friday night was there was an initial attack on that fire and it was done by a volunteer fire department and they called the volunteer fire department back because they just didn't think it was safe. The Bureau of Land Management also indicated that they would help um, this IC commander with some resources that they would bring in a helicopter, actually from their Wickenburg area. The state forestry crews, again, were told to be there at 8 o'clock. BLM would bring in an engine. They would bring in their helicopter. And everybody was supposed to report by 8 o'clock in the morning. Um, so in reality, this fire was just left to burn all Friday night until they got there at 8 o'clock in the morning and then figured out what to do. Yeah, and in the interviews at this time, throughout the interviews now, it seems that they keep mentioning that uh, the IC was, incident commander was getting tired. And he had been up for uh, quite a few hours at this time, checking the uh, uh, initial attack on all those other lightning fires and then coming to work on this one. Um, there was concern at that time that the hand crew couldn't conduct a direct, direct attack because there was no good way for them to get to the fire Friday night. So a direct attack would be like um, going right along the edge of the fire. We call it keeping the black with you. So the area that's burned is right on your edge and you have the stuff that's not burned on, the other, on one side of you and the black on the other. And you're just building a line, cutting out any fuels between those two areas and just going right along the edge of the fire. Well, and it's a safe way to fight the fire because you always have that black to step into that nothing can burn in. Absolutely, and again, it was brought up that you know paths were blocked, that it was so overgrown. In that Yarnell Hill area, they did not do any type of fuel mitigation, no fuels reduction for 40 years. That's a long time. And then, again, we have the low dew point average. We, we know it's ready to go. Um, it's pretty crazy. Yeah, those low RHs and the, uh, he says that it was so, so overgrown that they couldn't even get an ATV through there, through those um, little trails that were in there, or, or get a crew into that area. Well, and he was concerned, again, with that weather report that they heard earlier, he was concerned about more lightning strikes. And lightning, if I remember correctly, Doug, will drive crews off ridges. If you're on a ridge and you hear lightning, you want to get down from that ridge. Um, so keep that in the back of your mind. Absolutely. You don't want to get stuck out in a lightning storm. It is terrifying. Is it? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well, okay. 
So we have Friday night, we have crews ordered, we have small amount of resources put on this fire. The fire is left to burn um, overnight. The IC commander isn't comfortable. He even stated in an interview that no, even that night, he wouldn't have been comfortable with a type one crew moving through that vegetation. And again, as Doug had explained earlier, a type three is kind of the beginning of a wildland, kind of, you know, a small wildland fire. That's a type three. The IC? Is that yeah. What yeah. That's the kind of commander you would have on that would be a, yeah. So when we're talking about a type one crew, what is that? So that's a different thing. Um, IC is the person in charge of the fire. A type one crew, there's different levels of um, crew capabilities. And if you're talking about a hand crew, which usually when you say crew, you mean a hand crew, that's usually 18 to 22 people. And then there's different levels. A type one inter interagency hotshot crew is the best, highest level you can get for a hand crew. And they're going to be able to break off into other groups. They're going to be able to have an uh, IC. They're going to be able to be division. All these are... They're just different um, command positions within a fire that they can break off into. And they're going to have people that can run dozers. They're going to have, every, everybody's going to be chainsaw qualified. Everybody's, they're going to have radios for a lot of their crew. The crew has to be, have been working together for a set amount of time. Um, they have to be certain amount of return, people returning from the year before, mm -hmm. before they can be type one. Then there's type two IA, which is, Oh, actually, there's a, there's a type 1 crew that's not interagency. And that's really similar to an to a interagency hotshot crew, but they're not sent out necessarily. They don't have as long as seasons. They're not sent out for as many fires. They're more of a local resource. Well, I know since the Arnell Hill fire, a lot of people are a lot more educated in what a wildland firefighter is. And I've heard type 1 crews described as the special forces of the wildland community. You know, they're the ones that are the elite, the top trained. I know sometimes that makes people feel a little uncomfortable, but they are the top echelon of training and experience in the wildland field. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. And there's also, I mean, smoke jumpers would also be in that category. They're and yeah. like held yes. um, repellers too. And yes. There's a lot of different um, options out there, but definitely a hand crew. Your best option for a hand crew is definitely type 1 IHC. Okay. So we're in coming episodes, in upcoming episodes, we're going to be talking about Granite Mountain was a type 1 crew. What were their um, qualifications? What were their hours? What did they do? We're going to be talking about the history. Um, we're going to be branching off so that you're fully aware of who this crew was and what their training was like. But again, I want to reiterate what we're doing here, we're going to be discussing the tragedy that happened in June, at the end of June in 2013 in Yarnell, Arizona, where 19 men lost their lives, how that investigation happened, how there were other agencies working, what actually happens on a wildland fire, what happened June 28th, June 29th, June 30th, and days and weeks and years that followed, we're going to be looking at what could have possibly went wrong, what did go wrong, 
what are some things that you might not know that we know? How possibly we might know exactly what happened, and we'll give you what we believe happened. So we hope you keep listening and be prepared. Thank you for taking the time to listen to Penny University. Please join us again for the next episode in this thought-provoking series. We hope you find us a podcast with value. Until next episode, be strong, wise, and safe.